Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be. This is another episode in the series on American literature, and in this particular episode, we're going to look at Columbus, Devaka, and Champlain. We're going to examine them inside the context of why in the world are we talking about these guys and, of course, on American literature. After all, we're supposed to be studying literature. Literature would involve things like poetry and creative stories and uh, perhaps outlandish plots or something like that. We did start with myths, and those kind of beat that definition a little bit, but now we're looking at you know guys writing letters because they crossed the giant ocean and they were exploring new territory. So let's just go ahead and jump right in by uh, examining Columbus. Let's start talking about Columbus by looking at some of the things people normally get wrong. If you're as old as I am and I'm in my 40s, you probably remember being young and somebody telling you something along the lines of Columbus was really brave because he was going to go west and everybody thought he was going to fall off the planet because the planet was flat. That's patently false. I don't know how else to put it. People knew that the world was round as far back as the Greeks. In fact, they did some pretty ingenious experiments involving basically measuring shadows at a certain distance apart. And they came pretty close, to the, uh, as far as approximation goes, to the actual circum circumference of the entire planet. Columbus had calculated that as well. He was a little bit off. He thought that the planet was a little smaller than it is. So you can perhaps forgive him for thinking that he had actually gone around the globe and arrived in China, because that's what he was looking for. He was looking for the, the east, and he knew if he went west far enough, he could reach the east. So he didn't really know that he was in a new location, according to different sources at different times. Some people say that he never quite knew that he had discovered a new world. Um, I think there's kind of an argument against that because his sons tried to convince him that he had discovered something new. But a couple other facts, he never set foot in North America. Um, he did set foot in Central America on some of his future voyages, not the ones that, you know, the one that's dictated here in, in the letter that we've read. Uh, but that, I hope, gives you a couple of ways that you can think about Columbus, you know, that might challenge things that you've heard in the past. Let's look at a couple of other things associated with Columbus as well. He was Genoese, which basically means he was, and some people would say, you know, this is incorrect, but it's it's close enough. It, he's essentially Italian. He wants to sail um, professionally. He wants to, again, go west. So initially he tries to sail for Portugal, and Portugal says, no, we don't really want to do that. So he goes to Spain. Well, Spain has just finished driving the Moors out, and uh, the, the king and queen are looking to distinguish themselves somehow. And so they, th they think, well, yeah, okay, this might not be a bad idea. So Columbus gets on his boat, and uh, he has three ships, and they're, they're not terribly big. If you've ever looked at a, uh, a size chart of these things, they're quite small. It would be um, a hairy thing to cross an ocean and something like that. So he crosses the ocean, and he gets about halfway across, and the wind... Uh, is calmed. And that's a, a horrible thing if your ship is being driven by the wind. So he's basically in the middle of the Atlantic and he's got uh, a bunch of Spanish guys on the boat with them who are already a little suspicious of him because he's not of their nationality. And they essentially want to turn the boat around. Well, he argues with them, um, manages to convince them to keep going for at least a certain amount of time. A guy on another boat, another one of his boats, um, sort of takes off. To, he decides that he's going to be one of the first people to discover the new world. So he, he takes off and Columbus essentially has to kind of chase him a little bit. And I'm telling you all of this because I want you to understand that Columbus is in danger. I just said a second ago that 
you know, he didn't, nobody thought he was going to sail off the edge of the world, but he definitely was in danger um, the, the entire trip. Why is all of this so important? I mean, why do we need to know this? Why does this matter? Well, if you look at page 86 toward the end of that letter, he says uh, something along the lines of, after having written this and being in the Sea of Castile, there came upon me a great south-south-west wind that I was obliged to lighten ship. Fine, nothing really terribly special there. But he does note, if you read a little bit further, that uh, I ran here today into this port of Lisbon. Now, if you've paid attention to what I just said, he initially tried to sail for Portugal, which is where Lisbon is. So he's sending this letter then, very um, subtly saying, hey, I'm in some trouble here and I really need your help. Uh, hey, King and Queen of Spain, I've washed up in the very place where they are most unlikely to like me and I have your ships, two of your ships left, um, you know, all my crew and, and, and things like that. And uh, I, I kind of need your help because uh, I think the King of Portugal is kind of mad because he didn't want me to sell for him, but he also didn't want me to sell for anybody else. And now I've come back and I'm successful. So, you know, please send help. Again, you might be thinking, well, okay, why do I need to know all this stuff in a literature class? It still sounds like you're talking about history. The thing is, in order to reach this literature class, you had to go through English 111 and English 112. And in both of those classes, uh, there is an extensive discussion about the art of rhetoric and the use of purpose and audience uh, and the awareness of purpose and audience, I should say, in order to meet a specific goal. And that's exactly what Columbus's letter is about, is, I, hey, I need to be rescued. Hey, I would really like to sell you know, what I did a little bit so that that way you'll send me back. He has a whole bunch of different purposes that he wishes to achieve here, and he's speaking directly to the audience that can give him all of those things. So when you read it, and when you're thinking about literature, don't just think of literature as, you know, something creative or, you know, poetry. It's oftentimes, sometimes I should say, uh, people doing things with words in order to achieve a goal. And that's going to be a running theme throughout the entire course. We're going to see a great number of people who are using nonfiction and uh, persuasive methods in order to convince somebody else somewhere uh, that they are right or that they have some specific point in mind. And that is, again, what exactly what Columbus is doing. Columbus is saying, I need rescue. I would like to go back. And hey, I found all these cool things for you. You should send somebody to help me or at least make sure that the king of Portugal doesn't capture me because that would be a really bad thing. So you have to kind of wrap your head around that. Now, that, that's argument number one, people doing things with language. And that's exactly what Columbus, Tabak, and Champlain are doing. Argument number two is, it, you know, if you've been sort of looking at this in your book while you're sitting here listening to me, if you just shut the book and look at the front cover, the front cover says the Bedford Anthology of American Literature. That means that we are geographically bound to study a certain type of writing or a certain uh, genre of writing, a certain occurrence of writing from, as it says, volume one, beginnings to 1865. That means that we don't get to choose. We don't get to say, well, this is creative and this isn't. So we're going to skip, you know, two or 300 years of history here. And we're just going to jump to the parts that we like. No, we don't get to do that. We, if we're going to study writing and we're going to study literature, and we're going to study how people were using language at this time. Uh, we have to do that by basically looking at what people were writing about. And if we say that it's going to be in a certain geographical location, in this case, um, America, we, again, have no choice. We have to sit down and say, okay, here's Columbus. His letter was extraordinarily important to the entire world, and it uh, deals with this particular geographical location, so therefore it should be a part of this course. So I do understand if you 
are thinking, why are we studying this in a history class? But that answer and the reason that I'm spending so much time talking about it applies to many, many other things that we'll be studying throughout the entire semester. Um, it applies from you know, people ranging from uh, Edward Taylor to uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, all the way to Frederick Douglass to um, Mary Rawlinson, to a whole range of people who are saying, you know, again, I'm using this nonfiction and it's capturing my experience. So this is going to be a running theme in our course. And it's very important that we start by examining right away when we get to the first instance of nonfiction, uh, why that nonfiction is applicable. As before, I just want to give you a couple of keys that you can use to unlock this writing, so to speak. And this is going to apply not just to Columbus, but to Devaka and Champlain as well. These are just general principles that you can use to, to frame your reading and to perhaps better understand it. Let's start with what's called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is the idea that we judge other cultures through the lens of our own culture. As you're reading, you can see a lot of ethnocentric behavior among all three of the people that we've read. Let's just start with Columbus. If you look on page 82, that uh, Columbus says very plainly, very bluntly, with no apology or explanation, I understood sufficiently from other Indians whom I had already taken that this land was nothing but an island, and I therefore followed its coast eastward. He concentrates more on the navigation that he's doing from the people that he has taken. He just slides that right in there. I just took these people. They were there. I needed them. I didn't ask them if they wanted to come with me. I just put them on my boat and here we go. So this is a very sort of ethnocentric thing. He he is viewing these people as a means of utility through the European lens that he brings with them. And that, by the way, applies to, I think the most obvious other example is Champlain. If you flip over to 104, Champlain is um, helping some native individuals in a battle that they're about to take place, uh, that's about to take place. And on 104, he says, uh, I promised to do all my power and said that I was very sorry they could not understand me so that I might give order and shape to their mode of attacking their enemies. In other words, I don't trust you to understand tactics, certainly not European tactics. And uh, I'm just really sorry that you don't understand me well enough, my language well enough, for me to tell you how to fight. <laughs> so this is, again, that ethnocentric behavior that these individuals judging everything they meet through their own lens without bothering to pause and think, uh, hey, wow, are these people, you know, just different and, and not lesser than me? And so that's going to be, again, kind of a running theme through the explorers. Uh, we see a little less of it with the colonists, uh, especially John Smith, who attempts to work with people, but then, you know, returns with people like Mary Rawlinson. So keep that theme in mind. Another theme that we can look at is also the way that Columbus goes about achieving some of his goals. So again, what are those goals? Well, he wants to be sent back. That's a major one. He uh, understands the sort of ages old principle that people die three times. The first time is when their physical body dies. Second time is when somebody uh, that, that knew them well or loved them dies. And then the third time is the last time that anybody ever says their name. And so that third time often is the way in which very famous people become concerned about their fame, 
you know, this again dates back to the Romans and the Greeks. Some ancient Romans and Greeks were worried about the legacy that they would leave. And Columbus is very much like this as well. So he knows that he wants to be sent back because he knows that he's going to have a huge impact on the world. He sort of understands the scope of what he's done, even if he doesn't quite understand what he has done. And he uses lies. I don't know any other way to put it. He uses lies to achieve that. Uh, he lies about a whole range of things, and he sort of already understands that he can get away with this. He has patterns from European culture and European history. Um, the uh, Marco Polo, for example, wrote an account, and people knew that there were lies in that, but they read it anyway. Um, their Mandeville's Travels is another great example. And one of those, right off the top of my head right now, I can't remember, but um, in one of those, they said something like that there were faces in the bodies of the people and that they hopped around on one foot. So obviously this is a kind of lie, but the problem is that nobody can go out and fact check it. In modern day society, if you're going to post something to you know, social media, you can go to Google and type it in, and then you can make sure that you do indeed have the correct thing. But in this particular day and age, you don't have that. You don't have somebody that can just say, well, you know, that sounds weird. Some you know, faces in people's chest. Let me you know, get on my horse and ride over here and just fact check that. That would be a huge um, uh, thing to undertake that might take years and years and years if you made it back at all. So he knows that people in Europe accept lies, and he knows that he can lie to a certain degree because he knows that people will follow him uh, to this new you know, across his new path. So he knows that, again, he can kind of get away with a little bit. Let's examine some of those uh, lies and kind of give you an idea, again, you know, inside that scope that we've been discussing. I don't want to examine every single one, but I'm going to call out two specific ones. Uh, so the very first one is, if you look at page 82, and this is down toward the bottom, the sierras of the mountains, the plants, the arable and pasture lands are so lovely and so rich for planting and sowing. Okay, that's easy. That's straightforward. Um, but then he goes on to talk about the rivers. And he says that the rivers, the majority of which of those rivers, contain gold. Um, there are also great mines of gold and of other metals. He's arrived in a new land that's from a completely different language group than all the language groups that he's been exposed to to this point. Um, if you've studied culture at all, you know that symbols are not universal you know european people tend to point with their middle finger people from the united states tend to point with their index finger people in other countries oftentimes gesture for somebody to come toward them by turning their hand over and sort of scraping with their hand so he's arrived in a location that he does not understand the language of the culture how in the world does he get from these people that there are great mines of gold and other metals uh, deep within these territories he's basically kind of skimming through the territory just seeing what he can see and mapping what he can map, there's not necessarily sufficient time for him to go and do all these explorations. And so he is trying to gain this information from the people there in front of him. So when he says great mines of gold and of other metals, this is, I would say, a lie. Um, I, the easiest thought experiment I can give you is I, I know that many students have studied Spanish. And so a very, very simple common thing would be there is plutonium, irradiated plutonium, three hills over to the west. That's a very easy concept with very common, uh, fairly common you know, terminology that we use these days. But I, I've found that most students who have studied Spanish even maybe for three semesters, four semesters, can't say that. So how in the world is Columbus going to get you know, great mines of gold and other metals from you know, what, what's been examined here? So keep that one in mind. Uh, the other one is, let's see, he talks about the fact that they are not idolaters. 
He says that they, they do not hold any creed, nor are they idolaters. This is on 83. But if you go over toward the end of the letter, he then also, you know, he catches himself. Um, they, they can make slaves as many as they shall order to be shipped, and who will come from the idolaters? So they're not idolaters, but they are idolaters. But just as you're reading through, pay attention. There are quite a number of things that I would say it's very impossible for him to know, uh, given the language group and the cultural barriers between the two. Ironically, one of the things that's in here that uh, might seem most outlandish and that students oftentimes say, oh, that's definitely not true, might actually be true. And that's when he mentions that uh, some of them had tails. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes people are still born with vestigial vestigial tails and if he's seeing people who have very few clothes on he may have seen somebody with a you know very very small vestigial tail all right this episode is starting to run a little bit long so i'm going to try to wrap it up by giving you just some overview of devaka and champlain let's start with champlain because he is fairly close to columbus in terms of some of the things that he's trying to accomplish he's not outright lying but he is trying to sell himself to some degree look at me i'm a, a great explorer but he also has something in common with many other people we're going to be reading at the first part of the semester, and that is that he spends an extensive amount of time describing things. If you look at the very beginning of the portion that we've read, he spends something like an entire page uh, just describing the forest and the lands and the people there. This is because at this time period, they did not have photography. So if the Europeans were going to be able to sort of picture in their heads what this new land was like, they relied on these extensive descriptions. To a modern ear, that can be very boring. I understand you you know you might be reading through this thinking who, who cares like i can't see this or if i want to see this i could just go google it yes you can but that's because you're so locked into the present that you oftentimes forget what it must have been like to live in the past so you know remember that as we go forward too we'll see this when we get to cooper we'll see this when we get to even irving still does a little bit um, but that's the reason why they spend so much time describing things um, i've already talked about the ethnocentric behavior that he has and you know sort of pay attention to the way he's interacting with the natives he is actually working with them but it's very clear that he doesn't necessarily respect them that brings us to devaka devaka is the exception to the three of them because devaka actually got lost um, unintentionally lost it's a kind of a long story but he uh he got you know set off to one side um, when they attempted to drop him on florida and then the boats didn't quite get to that location because they didn't realize that they were dragging against the current and so they were basically um, a couple dozen i think uh, maybe a couple hundred miles off from picking them up from the rendezvous point so devaka got uh, lost with a bunch of other people they essentially walked all the way um, around the um, the bay there and they ended up in mexico and this is where they were picked up again by the spanish during that time he and the other people that he was with many of them died uh, he did not die clearly that's how he sat down and wrote the entire thing but he did come to a sort of respect for these individuals and this is a respect that we don't see in the other two and he has that respect arguably because it's a uh, stockholm syndrome right he's been captured by these individuals and um, he's he's been held by these individuals, but he does come to a very begrudging respect of them. Um, he did try later to to write and to convince people that they were you know good and that they were worthwhile. And as you read through, pay attention to that. Look at what he's doing and how he's framing uh, the the things that he's presenting to the the king in this particular case or the Catholic Majesty. So it, in in again that situation that's how it's being approached and and he's just very very different in in this particular way he has a lot of religious imagery in there too for example while he's wandering in the desert he meets a burning bush 
that's not an accident. That is, you know, religious iconography that he's including. And also the native peoples thought that he could heal just by speaking. Um, he was not necessarily convinced, but they did force him to. And then I don't want to say it went to his head, but it certainly went to the heads of some of the people that were with him. For example, uh, one of the slaves that he had with him did return um, and people weren't quite sure what happened to him, but there's some accounts that he was uh, indeed murdered. Okay, and that brings me to the end of the episode. I hope that this gives you a couple of keys that you can use to better understand the text. This is a very complicated thing, and normally during a semester I would spend two classes, uh, so basically two hours talking about this. I've given you a very brief overview. I've oversimplified in some cases, uh, but I've all I've done all of this in order to give you again that understanding you need to see why we would read something like this in, in a class on literature, and to better understand the purpose that these men have in writing back to Europeans at home. If you have any questions, please let me know. If you want to contact me, please do. But uh, otherwise, I will pick this up when we get to the the colonist. <laughs>